Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Hello. How are we all? Very good. Hello, everyone on the live stream. It's nice to have you. Which camera am I looking at? One of them. Anyway, um, hello. My name's Chris. If I haven't met you yet. It is lovely to meet you. It's lovely to have some guests here tonight. Um, a bunch of people that we know, haven't seen for a little while. Um, welcome. It's good to have you. We are in, uh, well, in the kind of closing weeks of a series on the Gospel of Mark, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, this is the second last week. And if you have been around for this series, I wonder if you've picked up on kind of the story arc that this gospel has. Uh, We started off uh, in week one and all the way up to last week, um, chapters one to eight, there's this kind of gradual revelation of Jesus as Messiah. Like he he doesn't start in the first chapter and say, I'm the Messiah, everyone follows me. He shows people that he's the Messiah by the way that he loves people, by the way that he heals people, by the way that he teaches. And in fact, when people pick up that he's the Messiah, he tells them not to say anything. And so the whole, the whole gospel, it kind of follows this, this arc um, towards this revelation that uh, Lucy talked about last week. And if you didn't hear Lucy's talk last week, do yourself a favor, listen to it on the podcast. Um, it, it kind of all leads up to this moment where Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, the penny drops and he realizes that this guy they've been following, Jesus, he is Israel's Messiah. He's the chosen one. He is the person that the scriptures have been talking about since all the way um, in Genesis, in creation. That this is the guy that they have been waiting for. And it's this turning point in the gospel, which has been going up to that point. It's this revelation of Jesus as Messiah And at that point, the narrative changes and it becomes Jesus' journey towards the cross. Um, And it's it's interesting because the the passage that we looked at last week, um, when Peter realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the first thing that Jesus does is he says, that's right, and the way that I'm going to carry out my mission, the way that I'm going to save Israel is I'm going to suffer, serve, and ultimately die. And it's interesting because this conversation where Jesus says what's about to happen, it happens three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's very neat. Um, And each time Jesus says this, the disciples, basically they put their foot in it. Like I said earlier, they, they say they, it, just, it doesn't make sense to them that the way that their saviour, that their, their Messiah would, they thought he was going to march into Jerusalem and, and seize the throne and beat out the Romans and establish Israel as a nation forever. And it just doesn't fit into their minds. When Jesus tells them plainly that he's going to suffer and die, it just doesn't fit into their worldview. And so after three times, they still don't get it. And you know what? Fair enough. In this series, um, we have been getting to know Jesus. It is my my hope and prayer that as a result of this series, that you would fall more and more in love with Jesus, that you would be filled with a brand new admiration for this incredible man, 
who lived and died and rose again. Um, We have got to know Jesus as a teacher. We've got to know him as the Son of God. We've got to know him as uh, a healer, as the mighty Messiah. Um, And tonight, we're going to get to know Jesus as a leader. Now, as I was writing this talk, I kind of felt like it was... It was more, a bit more like informational. Like there was just some, there was a lot of, um, I quite know how to say it, but I just, as we were in worship, I just got this real sense like tonight, God actually wants to redeem leadership for a bunch of us. You know, Australians, we don't have a great relationship with leaders. <laughs> Thanks for the laugh, Jen. <laughs> we don't have a great relationship with leaders. And in fact, uh, if you are familiar with any of what's been happening in the church, in the public sphere, in the last 10 years, you'll know that Christian leaders have not always led well. And my hope is that by looking at Jesus and how he led, that he is going to redeem that um, for all of us and that he will restore our faith in leadership and show us a better way. So I'm, I might pray before we go on and then we'll, uh, we'll get stuck into the passage Lord Jesus, thank you that you, uh, you were the ultimate leader, that you showed us how it's done. And Lord, uh, we just we repent and we say sorry for the times that we have got leadership so wrong as your church. Um, we repent um, of the terrible attitudes that we as Australians often have towards our leaders. And so Lord, tonight as we discover what, uh, how you led, I just pray that you would redeem that for us. Um, and Lord, for... Um, The leaders in the room here, Lord, just show us um, how to lead well. Amen. All right, let's get into it. So um, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. um, And while you do that, I'm going to give us a bit of setup for this passage. Now, I studied psychology at uni. I really loved it. And uh, I'm just going to get a bit excited for a little bit um, and and talk to us about psychology as a way to to set up this, this passage bit of social psychology. One of the things that separates us as human beings from the animals, one of the reasons why we are so successful as a species is, amongst other things, is because of our ability to work together. You know, if you go to the zoo, you will realise very quickly that probably at least 50% um, of, of the animals there could take you out in a fight quite easily. And yet the reason why they're in the zoo and we're not in the zoo is because as humans, we figured out how to work together. Now, how do we do that? What is the mechanism by which a group of people can work together? There's, there's obviously a bunch of them, but one of them is um, that whenever you are with any other person or any other group, you probably don't realize this, but you are making thousands and thousands of these kind of microscopic, subconscious, automatic judgments about the people that you're with. We look for uh, these, we, we basically look for these cues that people give off, you know, how people speak, how they stand, what they know, uh, what they say, what they're wearing, all of these things. Uh, and we basically rank people uh, that we're with um, to work out how to organize and, and, and structure the group. Now, that might sound terrible creating this kind of like internal ranking system, but uh, but, but work with me. It's, it's the way that we decide in a group of people who to trust, who to listen to. The other thing that's really important to say is it's quite contextual as well. You might be with a group of people in one setting and create this sort of internal rank in one way, but then in another setting, same group of people, you might order things differently. 
Uh, let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate this. So if you have ever been uh, in a first aid situation or at the scene of an accident, um, something quite serious, you'll know that there's this really weird experience where all of the people who are around you, like you have this group of otherwise random strangers who suddenly are all unified in the slightly urgent uh, and important task of, of saving the life of the person who's been hurt. It's, it's quite a strange experience, but it's a great little microcosm of what I'm talking about. Say you're the kind of natural leader who's, who's there in that setting. You will rec very quickly and almost unconsciously recognize, um, you know, there's someone who's, you know, holding up their first aid stick. Okay, you, you do the first aid. You're wearing high-vis. All right, you go direct traffic. Like, you, you kind of take in all these subconscious cues. You know, you're over there screaming, stop that, it's not helping. <laughs> and... And we, we, we do it automatically, and we kind of work out the, the, the order of who does what in the situation, even though they're all strangers. We're very, very good at it. And, you know, when the paramedics come along, when Sabrina comes along in the ambulance and, and arrives, you go, okay, you have the scene now, because you recognise, you know, they're in an ambulance, you know, have all of the gear they bring along. They, they clearly now are in charge of the situation, and no one would argue with that because we have these inbuilt mechanisms for kind of working out who does what. Another example, if you have ever been to a family dinner, you know, like big extended family dinner, and you've got like the grandparents, I've got a massive extended family on my dad's side, so you've got the grandparents, you've got all the aunts and uncles, and then there's you and all the cousins, or maybe you're the grandparents, or maybe, anyway, but you know what I mean. Um, there, there kind of is this automatic understanding, without anyone saying anything, of, of who's kind of, who's calling the shots in that setting, isn't there? And um, you always have the kind of like weird uncle and like you've got this, you've got this kind of, and everyone knows it, but no one says anything. And it's, you know, the person who's, who's calling the shots is usually the person with the credit card <laughs> and paying for dinner, right? But, but there's this kind of automatic social thing that we do where we just have this understanding of, and if we didn't have it, it'd be chaos, you know, it'd be like dine and dash on mass. It'd be terrible. <laughs> And so thank goodness that we have these social cues. I told you I was going to get excited. Um, the reality is that in every group of people, there is a distribution of power. It's how society works. Um, it's, it's helpful in, in helping us succeed as a species, but it is also, in this broken world, the cause of unspeakable damage. It's also the cause of unspeakable damage. Now, I have said all of this, um, about psychology in, in, in set up for this passage because I want you to understand that we all have leadership in some regards, whether that's, uh, whether that's within your family or within your group of friends or maybe it's a more formal leadership position or maybe um, you're a teacher with a classroom. You know, all of us can learn from this passage, which is often used to talk about leadership in a formal setting. All of us have something to learn from this passage. So we're in Mark 10. Hopefully you have it open. That was a while ago, wasn't it? Hopefully you still have it open. Uh, we're starting in verse 32. Sorry, we're starting in verse 35. And I'm going to uh, read it from the New Living Translation because I love the way um, that it does this passage. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What's your request? Jesus asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink 
from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the, uh, the ten other disciples heard what uh, James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, when someone reads a passage publicly, it kind of often goes, confession. So let me just, let's just go over what's just happened. So the disciples and Jesus, they're on the road to Jerusalem, and this is on the road to Jerusalem for Jesus to be crucified. The disciples have just figured out that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. So as I said earlier, they presumably think he is uh, marching into Jerusalem, ready to conquer. And if you're one of the disciples, you're like, I'm the inner circle of the most important person in all of our nation's history. Like, that's, a, that's pretty cool, right? Two of the disciples pull Jesus aside and they make this slightly outlandish request. Now, I think it's really important uh, when you read through the Gospels, give the, cut the disciples a little bit of slack. Um, in this case, I'm not sure I can. Like, it's a pretty... It seems like a pretty weird request to me. Maybe someone who understands theology more than me can, can reason why they would. But basically, they put their foot in it again. <laughs> um, Jesus says, do you really know what you're asking me for? I kind of want... This is just me wondering, but I kind of wonder whether, um, as, as we're reading this passage, whether we're supposed to think uh, forward to Jesus... Uh, with the thieves on either side of him crucified. I wonder whether Jesus is saying, do you really want to be those guys? Just me wondering. Um, and then the other disciples get really mad, and this is where we get this perfect microcosm of the kind of social psychology power dynamics that we just talked about. The other disciples get really mad, and there's, there's a bit of like a power thing going on, isn't there? Now, it's, it's really interesting because Jesus, when James and John come and make this slightly outlandish request, Jesus doesn't kind of gather everyone together and give this like corrective teaching. It's actually when the other disciples come and get really frustrated, that's when Jesus comes and gathers them together and goes, you know what, guys, we're going to do things a little bit differently from now on. Now, it's interesting because I think it's important to kind of separate out what Jesus is and isn't saying here. What Jesus is not saying in verses 40, 44 and 45, he's not saying that there should be no power imbalance. He's not saying that, that we should just eliminate any power dynamics from our society. In fact, he kind of implies that the opposite is going to be true. You know, it's just the reality of the way uh, the world works that there are going to be leaders and followers. But what he does say, and this is the absolutely central question that underpins everything we're talking about tonight. So if you take nothing else away, this is it. 
When you have a position of power, of authority, or of leadership, you have a very, very important decision. Are you going to use your power to your ends, or are you going to use it to serve others? If you're in a position of leadership, are you going to use that power to your own ends, which is the way of the world? You know, power just, it's intoxicating. And I, I, don't, I really don't think I need to illustrate that for you because I think all of us know what it's like to serve under a leader who uh, is serving themselves. But the way of Jesus is different. Jesus is saying, if you find yourself in that position of power and authority, then your job is to serve others. Use that position to love. Now, that's a pretty massive uh, change. You know, the, when, when I just talked about uh, how power dynamics work in groups, this actually flips it upside down, doesn't it? This like fundamentally uh, flips the way that human beings interact and work in groups. And so if Jesus is going to say this, is he going to back it up? Well, I want to suggest that um, this, this servant model of leadership is actually what Jesus did from the start to the end. And I'm just going to give us three examples to illustrate this. The first thing um, is that the way that Jesus ministered is he empowered other people. Isn't it interesting that the bulk of Jesus' ministry, for all of the teaching and all of the, uh, the healing and all of the, the ministry that Jesus did, the, the main activity uh, on his journey towards the cross was actually investing in a small group of people who followed him everywhere he went. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus spends so much of his energy investing in other people when in some ways he could have done so much more if he just he focused on doing ministry. Isn't that fascinating? And yet, uh, and e- even, even more interesting, Jesus, his whole ministry uh, that we read about in the Gospels, it took place in a very small geographic region. And it wasn't actually until Jesus ascended to heaven that he released these followers who had been investing in. And it was their job to take this message to the world. You know, surely Jesus would have done that himself, and yet he didn't. Uh, John 14, 12 says, uh, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. I want to suggest that not only did Jesus want to invest in people and release them, he actually hoped that their ministry would be more successful than his. What an incredible, incredible sign of someone who's a servant leader that they would actually genuinely believe and genuinely hope that their successes, that their trainees would outshine them. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing that Jesus, um, that Jesus wanted that? So Jesus empowered others. The second way that Jesus modeled this that I want to point out is that he refused to lean on his position. Think about it. Jesus is the literal son of God. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Of anyone who has ever lived, Jesus had the right to say, look, you just need to do what I say because of who I am. And yet he didn't do that. So there's a really interesting, um, there's a really interesting uh, passage that happens, John 5.19. Um, Jesus is having this interaction with the Pharisees after healing someone on the Sabbath. 
And he says, the son can do nothing by himself. So when, when Jesus' authority is questioned, he says, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. The legitimacy of Jesus, the son of God, has been questioned. And he doesn't say, you know what, I'm actually the son of God. You, I can heal on the Sabbath if I want to. He says, the reason I did that is because I saw God at work and I just wanted to partner with him. I think that's incredible. And the final one uh, I want to pull out is that Jesus actually took on the shortcomings of his followers. Now, uh, as someone who, who is in leadership, I, I want to confess to you that when, when an issue gets brought to me, when someone, uh, someone brings something that was done wrong and says, oh, you know, Chris, do you realize that you, you got that wrong? And I know that it wasn't actually me. I am almost automatically going to say, oh, it wasn't me, it was that person. I mean, it's just, it's basically programmed into our nature, isn't it? Let's, let's just be honest with ourselves. Like, that's how we roll. Um, and yet, Jesus doesn't do that. When Jesus went to the cross as our leader, when he went to the cross, he took the fall for us in the most profound way. Romans, I think, to illustrate this, I just think Romans 5 puts it so well. It says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Jesus, he doesn't just preach about servant leadership. He models it all the way to the moment of his death. I just I think it's remarkable that we follow a leader who is that humble, who has that much integrity, who is that who is just that good uh, from the very core of his being that it just comes out uh, in everything he says and does. If if you are one of these people tonight where you need leadership redeemed for you, then I just ask you to look at Jesus, because. He, he, he lived, he ministered, he died and he rose again and he never got it wrong. And I, I don't think any of us should ever expect to live up to that standard because we're not Jesus, but thank goodness that we have Jesus because he is evidence to us um, that, that you can lead by serving. I want to quickly run through two ways that this plays out um, for us and then we're going to go into ministry uh, so just two really practical implications. And the first one I think is fairly obvious. What does this, um, this passage, what does Jesus' model of leadership uh, mean for us? Um, number one, what does it mean for us in, in formal leadership? How do we lead differently as a result of what we've just read? Well, if you want to lead a group of people in, in a formal sense, if you've got a team working with you and you need to get a task done, there are a few ways you can do it. The first one is you can uh, appeal to your position. You can say, well, I'm the boss, so you have to do what I say. Uh, you can uh, lead by the promise of a reward. So you can say, if, you, uh, if you, we get this task done, then I'll buy us all donuts. You can do the threat of punishment. You can say, if we don't get this done, I'll take the donuts away. There's, you can appeal to your connections. You can say, well, I actually know the guy who, who brings the donuts, and I can ask him for extras. <laughs> 
Or you can, uh, you can appeal to your knowledge. You can, you know, if you have some kind of specialist knowledge that gives you power in that situation, you can appeal to that. I know how to make donuts. You're welcome. Um, and you know what? Some of these strategies, like they are actually warranted in some situations. You know, I, I can say to David, my son, you know, if you jump off that, it's going to hurt. Don't do that. Um, you know, sometimes these, these leadership strategies are warranted, but ultimately what they are doing is it's leadership via control. Now, what Jesus models is slightly different. Um, he models leadership via serving, and I want to suggest that in a, uh, in a formal leadership setting, one of the most powerful ways that that plays out is leadership via empowerment. I've got this absolutely absolute cracker of a quote I want to put up on the screen. Um, I wanted it to be black, uh, white on black, but Andrew made it black on white because I invested the authority in him to do that. Um, now, this is, this is in like a corporate setting, but see if you can translate this to your own, to your own uh, leadership, whatever that looks like. The strength of your organization is not a reflection of what you control. The strength of your organization is a reflection of who you empower. Next slide. Most leaders delegate tasks. The best leaders delegate authority. When you delegate tasks, you create followers. When you delegate authority, you create leaders. It's so good, isn't it? Can we just do that again, Andrew? Oh, sorry, it's Sean controlling the slides. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> uh, the strength of your organization is not a reflection of what you, can, what you control. The strength of your organization is a reflection of who you will empower. Most leaders delegate tasks, but the best leaders, they delegate authority. When you delegate tasks, you create followers. When you delegate authority, you create leaders. That's, that's exactly... That I just I couldn't imagine a better way of putting into words what Jesus did with his, his followers. He gave them authority. And that's what Jesus does for us today as his church. He gives us authority. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that incredible? But you see, the challenge here, the very big caveat is that if you're going to be this kind of leader, you need to be incredibly, incredibly secure in who you are. You need to be very very secure in who you are. Because what happens if the leaders that you empower do better than you? What happens if you go, you know what, I'm going to lead like Jesus, so I'm going to give away authority. What happens if the leaders that you delegate authority to actually do better than you and overshadow or outshine you? If you are not incredibly, incredibly comfortable in who you are in Christ, then this will kill you. It will hurt big time. But if you know who you are, if you know who Jesus is, and you know that he loves you, then you can do this too. And it will change the world. It will redeem leadership for so many people. You will see your organization, your family, whatever, you will see it flourish because this is, this is a kingdom kind of leadership. And, you know, it's really interesting because uh, I did a subject on leadership uh, as part of my master's last semester. And in the secular uh, literature on, on leadership, pretty much um, they always quote this passage in Mark 44, 45. 
Uh, yeah, this, like, this, is, this is in secular literature. They look to this passage in Mark as an example of basically as the origin of servant leadership, which is like the go-to leadership paradigm in business these days. Isn't that amazing? How clever is Jesus? So that's, so that's number one. So that's, um, there, that's how this plays out in uh, formal leadership settings. The second is I want to talk about um, how, what the implications are for, for church culture. How does this play out? Now, the first, the, the first kind of aspect of that is clearly how church leadership works. So what's the role that Jen and I, what's the role that um, Rob and Bonnie have uh, in the church? Now, having been pastoring for around six years now, Jen and I have both, I speak on behalf of both of us, we've learned that um, the primary role of pastoring is not teaching, it's not pastoral care, uh, it's not, um, you know, business management for, for all the back-end stuff, it's none of those things. They're all important, but fundamentally the task of a pastor of a church is to empower the congregation. It's empowerment. Um, Jen and I see our primary role as pastors is to empower and equip you guys and we have done our job well if from this community emerge uh, a whole a, a plague of incredible leaders who go out into every every sphere and every circumstance and every family and wherever there's leaders if they're coming out from our community and they're representing the kingdom if they're serving wherever they are if they're um, investing uh, kingdom seed into their organizations um, or, or, or whatever setting they're in. That's, we, we've done our job well if that's what's happening. And it's basically just, it's just, basically just what Jesus modeled, isn't it? It's discipleship. And so our, our hope is that as we, as we lead you guys as a community, that that's what would happen. And if you ever see us um, trying to lead by control, please tell us nicely. But please let us know because... Our, thanks. Rob's like, yes, please tell us nicely. <laughs> you can send us an email after church, but just make it nice. But let us know because our heart, and I, I, I'm sure I speak for Rob and Bon as well when I say our heart is that we would serve you, that we would equip you and we would empower you. That's hopefully what uh, healthy church leadership looks like. But there's another kind of leadership that I think is really important to call out, um, which involves all of us, whether you have a position or not. And um, it's in, in any community, you get this kind of informal power structure that grows up, just like I described early on. And it may, in a church, it might be the pastors, but it also might not. Um, and it usually is the people who've been around a church for the longest. These kinds of people, and you may well be one of them, or you might be sitting next to one of them. It's not good or bad. <laughs> uh, I promise. It's not, but... Um, Basically, people end up becoming, within, within the fabric of a community, gatekeepers for the community, people who have that kind of uh, relational leadership within a church. Now, one of two things can happen when you get a community that has gatekeepers, and every community does. The first is that the gatekeepers become really comfortable with the way things are. You know what? We've actually got a great group at church right now. Um, you know, worship is great. Messages are awesome. I like the speakers. I, you know, I feel very comfortable with everyone who's at church on a Sunday. And so gatekeepers um, can use their power uh, to control the status quo. When new people come to church, they sort of uh, stonewall them out of the community. 
And despite, you know, anyone else's efforts, if the, the kind of key relational players in a community aren't interested, then it's very difficult to connect. The other option is that these gatekeepers recognise um, that they have an important influence socially within, within the fabric of the community that they belong to. And these gatekeepers have this incredible opportunity to use their role to welcome people in and to begin to disciple people. And it's like none of this is, is part of the church structure or, or program. Or like none of these people have a, you know, many of these people don't have a formal title. It's often the people who've been around the longest, but it doesn't have to be. If you are one of these, those people, I want to encourage you to recognize the position that you have in our community and to use that to build it, to build the kingdom. What a gift. What a gift you have. And if you become one of those people, I'd encourage you to remember what it felt like when you were new. You know, the reality of, of being a larger community is that um, subgroups will form, like you know, we often talk about, we, I think we sometimes wish that the whole community would just be like one social group, but that's just not the reality of how people work. You know, obviously we want to be a unified uh, community who worship together and do life together, but once you get past a certain threshold, subgroups do form, and that's okay so long as those groups are permeable and so long as they overlap. And, and often it's these people who have this relational power who get to decide that. Just going to let that sink in for one second. I think it would be great for us, um, as we finish, just to, just to think back uh, to who Jesus is. Think back to the way that he led. Think back to, I want to draw our attention to um, Jesus on the cross. Um, there's this, I might even see if I can find it. You know, there's this moment where Jesus is on the cross and he is being mocked. Um, he is being mocked um, by, by the people who are surrounding him. And you know, one of the things you discover in the Gospels is um, Jesus was always the guy with the perfect comeback. I mean, it's one of the privileges of being the son of God, I'm sure. But he always had the right things to say. And yet on the cross, as people mocked him, he chose not to respond. He chose to pray for them instead. This is the kind of leader that we have in the church. This is the leader who's the head of the church, who all of us, uh, in any form of leadership within the church, we all report to. And he is good through and through. He's dependable. He is reliable. And he led, he leads us by loving us, by serving us, and by caring for us. So why don't we stand and let's just see what God wants to do. I think God wants me to say as a newbie in the mm. to do welcoming really well. Wow, thank you. Yep, true. Wow. That, that's, that's really awesome. Thank you, guys. All right, so what we're going to do is um, many of you know this really well. That's great. I'm going to explain it for those of us who are still learning. Um, and maybe if you know this really well, you might still learn something. What we're going to do is we're just going to um, take a moment. We're going to wait in silence for the Holy Spirit to come. 
Uh, this, as Jen mentioned earlier, it's Pentecost Sunday today. If there's any Sunday in the year he's going to do that, this is going to be the one. So we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit. We're just going to wait for quite some time. And what might happen, there's a few things. One is that you might start to feel God in some way. Maybe you'll start getting really hot. you start shaking. You'll start crying. Um, if that's you, then just don't focus on the thing, like the, the shaking or the crying. Focus on God and say, God, what are you doing? What are you showing me in this moment? Another strong possibility is you might feel nothing. And if that's the case, that absolutely does not mean that God is not doing something. Uh, it just means that you might have to pay attention to him a little closer to notice if he's doing something. So we're just going to wait. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen? It's going to be great. All right. Here we are. If it uh, helps, close your eyes, hold out your hands, and let's wait on the Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Lord.